Oh, hello, Leonard. Uh, good, uh, good morning, I should say, because it's like 10.30 or something here in Sweden. Yeah, it is. But, good morning. You know, people might listen good to morning. this at any time. So for them, it I guess so. good night or good day or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah. What, yeah, it's really nice to have you back uh, in our podcast to, to go a little bit deeper and, and to talk about more things. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you very much. Today we want to talk a little bit about Herring, yes, you have been uh, quite a big part of Herring Dance Camp, I would say. Uh, can you tell us about uh, the start of Herring Dance Camp? Because I guess you're pretty involved with that. Well, I guess I was, and uh, this goes back in time now. We, we have to go back to 1982, I think some of you know that. <coughs> and this camp... It was linked to a swing dance society in Stockholm called Swedish Swing Society. And that uh, society, dance club, it was linked to Lasse Kühler. Uh, and, and he was a famous choreographer, entertainer, dancer in Sweden in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, into the 90s and so on. So um, I was a member of that club. And the club maybe held about, let's say, 80, 90 members at the time. And we didn't know much about Jittebag because we called it Jittebag. We didn't know about the name Lindy Hop at the time. So we danced this dance, we competed in it, and it was very much related to the 1950s with a lot of American music, especially Bill Haley music and other types of music from that era. Um, We understood everything was American and uh, at some point someone, and this is probably Peter Strandell, Tommy Boström, Janne Falk, some of the key people that were in the society, they came up with an idea that maybe we could try to find an American instructor to come to Sweden. And I was on the board of Swedish Wing Society at the time, so we started to talk about it. And someone, I think it was Peter Strandell, he found uh, a man living in New York. His name was John Clancy. And he had a background as a Lindy instructor and dancer. He was around 70 years old. So along the way, there was an agreement made with him that he should come to Sweden in the summer of 82. And at that time, I don't think we knew exactly where we wanted to uh, run the camp. But after a while, we came up with the idea that it shouldn't be in Stockholm. It would be better if we could be in a small place where everything was very concentrated somehow. Uh, Someone, and I think this was more coincidence than anything else, uh, started to look into this and found the place Herring. And I think none of us had been here before. So some people traveled up here, I assume, looked at the place and said, this will be good enough. And then uh, this camp took place in the first week of August 1982. John showed up with his wife, Kiki, 
and he provided classes every day. And when I look back upon it today, I would say what he gave to us was the Lindy. I wouldn't say the Lindy Hop. The Lindy Hop to me is more related to African-American culture and Harlem and Savoy Ballroom. I would say it was a downtown Manhattan Lindy style that he represented. Uh, and that was kind of new to us because uh, his material and approach was definitely different from the one we previously had learned in Sweden, primarily from Lasse Kühler. So it wasn't the uh, African-American style of the Lindy Hop at all. It was much, much more, I would say, middle-aged somehow without the real spirit, but still with a lot of new material and new approaches. Mm. So, so, so you had done more what you call jitterbug, which was maybe a Swedish version of the Lindy Hop. And, and, yeah, he, and yeah. you, were, you were looking for an instructor. He came and he presented more the Lindy, as you said, but it wasn't yeah. Lindy Hop. What no. did you think about uh, John Clancy at the time, his way of dancing? I mean, now, <clears throat> now you have another perspective, but at that time when he came? You know, at that time, we didn't have access to a lot of film material. What we had seen, though, was the so-called Bill Haley movies from the 1950s. And some of the dancing in these movies, the, we found them very spectacular, and I still find them very good. Uh, but when John came, it was much more a um, tame version of it. So we couldn't see really any pure connection between the Bill Haley film clips, John's teaching, and maybe our own six-count uh, jitterbug dancing. It was a little bit like three different pockets at the time. Mm. But I guess some of us understood that it is kind of the same, but it's different. Uh, accents of the dance. So I, I can't say that we were screaming and shouting about John's teaching, but we were definitely inspired from it because it, it showed another approach to the dance somehow. But I think at the time we would have liked it to be more like the Bill Haley movies from the 50s. Uh, in in uh, one previous episode, we talked about how you met Ireland. You went to New York, and, and this is 1982. Uh, re remind us, what year is it that you go to New York and find Al? Oh, that's two years later. So this is way before we knew fully that this was an African-American dance coming from Harlem culture of the 20s, 30s, and so on. We didn't know about that, and John never clearly told about it, but... I remember he spoke about the Savoy Ballroom, even though he also said that he had never been visiting the Savoy. Hmm. So it was, um, it was two years before Al, uh, but it still opened the door for us to look more into, should we say, the American side of things, the American history that none of us had done before because the historical information we got going to classes in Sweden in the late 70s, early 80s. It was basically nothing. I think no one at the time had done any, any checkups on the history, background and all those things. Mm. But 1982, that's the first time you go to the village Harang. Harang. Yes. 
And what happens in uh, 1983? Is it a dance camp in Herring that year as well? or? Yes, but we have to remember from the beginning, this was meant to be a one-time event. It was never meant to be a follow-up the next year or something, because we saw it, okay, we have John Clancy here, 1982, it's an exclusive moment. Mm. But we were around 25 people that showed up for the classes and we were only doing the classes in Folketshus, which at the time had a floor that was not even because it was like a, a cinema floor, which meant it was kind of sloped in a way. So it was a very weird uh, dance floor in a way. It was only half of it that was fully usable, I would say. But those people that never came to the event, members of Swedish Wing Society and other people, they heard about that we had had a lot of fun, you know, up here. And people started to talk to us sitting on the board of Swedish Wing Society. Can't you organize another event the next year? Mm. And that mm. is, of course, what we picked up on finally. We said, okay, let's do it again. I don't remember if we had a long-term perspective, but uh, after a few years, it was definitely a little bit of an institution for Swedish jitterbug dancers. So, uh, 83, there is uh, another camp of some sort, but 84 you go and find Al. When is it that you start to get African-American dancers to harangue? Well, that was much later because when we met Al in 84 and he came to Sweden in the fall of 84, the intention that we had at the time, that was to bring him to harangue for the summer of 85. But I think many of us know that Al passed in April 85 because he had cancer. And that led to, of course, that the camp of 85 never had Al there, which was the original idea. But we continued uh, in the 80s with uh, basically uh, Swedish teachers, mainly from the Swedish Swing Society. And nothing seemed to happen really uh, with the African-American side before we got in contact with Frankie, which was around 86, 87. And that led to, first of all, that Frankie came to Sweden in 87, but then he worked exclusively with the Rhythm Hotshots, the dance troupe that have kind of satellited from Swedish Swing Society, focusing on African-American swing dancing. And then that group, the Rhythm Hotshots, started their own camp in Harang in 1989, inviting Frankie to be the main attraction. So in 89, the, the Swedish Wing Society had two weeks of camp activities in the village and Rhythm Hotshots with Frankie Manning also had two weeks. And you were part of the Rhythm Hotshots, the start of Rhythm Hotshots. Yes, and that was the group started in '85, um, not having any intention to teach or something because we were not capable of that. So our focus was to learn as much as possible around uh, what we could find in old film clips, primarily, uh, and it was basically related to African American swing dancing with a little bit of 
should we say white swing dancing too, but it was definitely Harlem and this boy ballroom that we were fascinated by. So, uh, 87, Frankie comes to Herring, but he's not involved in the camp, or is he only working with you? Yes, so we were there at a separate time, and then later on that year, Swedish Wing Society, that I not fully was a part of at the time, uh, had their one, or I would assume it was two weeks already in 87. Mm. How, how come that you were not longer a part of the Swedish Swing Society? I mean, I was a part of it as a member, of course, but I was not active in the society any longer because when when I was in Sweden in 84, the Rhythm Hotshots was formed in 85, then I wanted to focus on my own dancing and my dancing, I wanted it to develop in the footsteps of Albert Mintz and the film clips that I had access to. I didn't want to do the Swedish jitterbug any longer. That um, A lot of the members after Al's visit, they were still holding on to their old know-how. And I didn't like that. I wanted to start from scratch. And the only place to start with such work, that was within Rhythm Hot Shots. So, uh, 1989, that you do your own weeks. Did, did you have two weeks and Swedish Swing Society two weeks? Yes, that is what happened. So, is, is there some kind of conflict between two of you? Or how, how, how is it? Why do you split <laughs> weeks? Yeah, but there was a little friction. And the, the friction goes back to after Al left Sweden. Because a small group of us, meaning members of the Swedish Wing Society, we wanted the whole society to move over to what Al had passed on, dropping the, the old Swedish jitterbug that the club had been doing for five, six, seven years. So we wanted a new direction. But some of the members, maybe the most um, uh, important one leading Swedish Wing Society, they didn't want to do that fully. And that led to that we had to step aside and then we formed Rhythm Hotshot with a, a very specific aim to stay as true to the history as we possibly could. So there was a little friction inside that. Um, when, they, when we started camp activities also in Harang, I don't remember if the friction was very bad. It was a little bit, but I also remember at the time I think there were new winds starting to blow inside Swedish Wing Society because for the years to come, we had two weeks first, Swedish Wing Society after us. Very often their instructors came to our event to primarily learn from Rhythm Hotshots and especially Frankie Manning. And then they took their new know-how and they were teaching it for the two weeks that Swedish Wings Society had right after Rhythm Hotshots, two weeks. It wasn't like a big wall in between us or something. We had uh, two parallel camps, I say for two, three years. Then we decided to join forces, but Swedish Wings Society then had accepted that it was the Frankie Manning um, way of dancing, the Harlem tradition 
that would be the future for Harang Dance Camp. So they were supporting organizers and it was only one event at the time. But then a few years later than that, then Swedish Wing Society said to us, Rhythm Hotshots, hey guys, we believe that you can take care of this camp on your own. So maybe we don't need to be involved, but we will be supportive of the event. And that is what happened. I would say maybe 93, 94 or something. So herring starts like a one-time thing, small, small gathering. And is it growing quickly, would you say? Now, it started to grow immediately if we talk about the 80s, yes. So it led to that somewhere in the mid-80s it became two weeks. But we have to remember at that time a full week was probably 60, 70, 80 people. So it wasn't like today when a full week maybe is 500 people. Uh, but two weeks um, was for most of the years in the later part of the, of the 80s. Um, so it didn't grow uh, fast, 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 but there was obviously an, an increasing interest. When Frankie came in 89, yeah, the camp was able to hold, or the Harang was able to offer four weeks that probably held around 100 people each week at the time. But the expansion came in the 90s when um, other countries started to show up in Harang. That was the time when it really started to grow. Before that, it was a small growth every year, but it was more like in the mid-90s, some, something really started to happen. Do you remember who the first foreign people were that came as students to Harang Dance Camp? Yes, I actually do, because it was only two of them. Uh, and they came in 1989. Uh, it was an American guy. His name was Peter Cassidy. And it was a German lady. Her name was uh, Carola White. And it was those two. And we were very surprised when they showed up because before we had never seen a foreign dancer coming to the camp. So it was like, wow, how did they learn about this? And <clears throat> Why did they decide to come here for a full week? It seemed very ambitious to us at the time. And you didn't do any marketing outside of Swedish Swing Society? or? Now, we have to remember also, this is before the internet. What we had every year was a brochure, or from the beginning it was a very small brochure, like a flyer, leaflet, something like that. And we were trying to spread it uh, a little bit, but uh, I, I don't think it was until 91, 92 that people in other countries really started to hear about Harang and especially about that Frankie Manning was there. So it, it, we did a little bit, but it wasn't that easy to get out there. And also it wasn't that many Lindy dancers in circulation worldwide at the time. So from uh, German visitors to how many countries has it been uh, present in Herring in one year? Oui. Do, do you know? Uh, you mean in more recent years yeah, and so exactly. on? I mean, it, it grows. Oui. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I assume if you would find the top year somewhere, maybe 60, 70 countries, something. 78. 78. 78. Okay, okay, I see. Yeah. Okay, uh, it's so quite fantastic. Either 76 or 78. I'm the one checking the statistics because I think it is quite fascinating to have such many countries. Yeah. And that you see that it, during my 20 years with the camp, that it just steadily grew. Mm. And from the beginning, it was 20, 25, and then next one is was 30, and then 35, and four, just climbing bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. And uh, yeah. having visitors and dancers from the whole world. Of course, because of the Lindy community expanding worldwide as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember at the time when you and I started talking about that, I, that it was going to be 300 people in one week and I was like it's going it's not going to work it's going to be too much but too crowded you can't fit once this 90s or... I, so, somewhere in the later part of the 90s I guess or yeah. mid 90s yeah you showed to be wrong also I mean <laughs> because now we're talking about numbers in one week I would say that maybe in a in a full week uh, before the pandemic maybe we had seven seven hundred and fifty people taking classes but then on top of that we also have there is also these party pass visitors that only go in at night social dancing and then you have hundreds of staff and just people that are hangarounds that just mm -hmm. like the atmosphere so i would say that it's for sure is more than a thousand people per week in but the bigger weeks i i remember sometime i think it's maybe around the 2000 or something we are on a tour with the Rhythm Hotshots in America and at a bar somewhere I talked to somebody about Lindy Hop and this person who was not a Lindy dancer had heard about Herring Dance Camp which is pretty fascinating that a non-Lindy Hop dancer in America had heard about this dance camp so what do you Lennart think made it so big how could it spread so much why do people from all over the world travel to Herring? Oh, that's a tricky question to answer. But I, I think one thing is, of course, that more and more people started to pay attention to the dance in the late 80s into the 90s and so on. So there was, of course, more people that were on the lookout for where can I go to learn more about this dance and Herring it kind of was established in the very beginning of what I call the revival of the Lindy Hop. So it had a little bit of a name as soon as someone started to look for information. I assume Herring was one of very few alternatives that came up. But then, of course, people learned about Frankie Manning. They knew he was in Herring every summer. Rhythm Hotshots had kind of a name as a performance troupe primarily, but also as teachers. Uh, maybe they heard about the village that it was by the open sea and you could go to the beach and all that stuff. So I think within that basic concept, uh, Herring positioned itself quite quickly. Without, we never made an effort to make it happen. We never had the ambition to make it like a worldwide thing. It, it just happened because People, some people came here, and I assume they started to spread good things about Tarang at the time. I think it was more about that than any form of marketing that we did, because we, we had very 
limited possibilities to sit and deal with that, with that because we were primarily performance dancers. I mean, I did all the administration for Harang for many years in the 90s, and I couldn't spend too much time because I still wanted to be a dancer more than an administrator. So I think it was word of mouth that spread the camp very much. Mm. But you don't think that it was a, a strong influence on the success was the fact that you had such a strong desire to actually lift out and, and present the Harlem way, the, the old timers and really learn from them, but not just learn from them, but actually pass it on in so many different ways, what they did in classes, because you learned from them and then you also taught. So the instructors that are teaching, the majority of them have this, uh, a similar approach or some, some, a similar passion. Yeah, the dance. I think that was a part of it. We have to remember young people today or people that are reason, reasonably new into the dance, they never will understand how influential Frankie was at the time. Mm. Frankie was kind of uh, the very center point of the revival of the Lindy Hop in the uh, late 80s, 90s and so on. Many new organizers came out from different places. They wanted Frankie to be there all the time because Frankie was the one that had the real stuff with him. So Frankie started to travel a lot. And I think it was his presence as well as some of the other old timers that uh, started to become uh, popular also. And uh, they also started to travel a little bit. And uh, that was the key thing for us and for Harang Dance Camp and maybe some other organizers too. We wanted to bring this kind of forgotten culture into some kind of spotlight again. Because it seemed like very few people were paying attention to it back in the 60s, 70s, into the 80s. And we were so on fire from all the movies and the books we had read and the Frankie and all those people. So we wanted to do whatever we could to spread that thing because we thought this is so good and we believe that more people will be interested if we just work around it in different ways. I think when it comes to Lindy Hop to be spread in the world, it feels like if Frankie wouldn't have been around the way he was, it probably we would probably not dance today. That's my guess because it, he really made it to, to spread I, I don't, over the world. It's hard to say. I mean, there were definitely groups that were very uh, dedicated to trying to preserve it and bring it back somehow already in the 80s uh, before Frankie came in teaching. So I think something would have happened anyway. But without Frankie, it's more questionable what kind of information and know-how that all those people that were just inspired would have had. Because it was Frankie that we always could ask, how is this? How was it at that time? What happened then? He was the reference. So it would have been another uh, type of dancing possibly without him. Um, maybe not as uh, heavily linked to this Savoy tradition. Maybe it would have been a little bit more, what do you say, diluted. Mm.
So uh, it's obvious that Frankie has been really important for uh, the Lindy Hop to spread like it has done. But if we look uh, to Herring Dance Camp, wh- who do you think has been the most influential people or important people for Herring to be what it is? And before you answer, I just want to say that I know that you're uh, often humble about talking about your own uh, involvement. So we know that you have been really important because if it wasn't for you, I guess the Herring Dance Camp wouldn't even have started. So you are one of the people who start the Herring Dance Camp and who others were there in the Rhythm Hot Shots? Yeah. Uh, the Rhythm Hot Shots, we, we were a performance dance troupe and uh, we started to get a little bit of recognition in the late 80s. Uh, we, at the time, let's say, let's say in 88, we were not interested to teach at all. We had no interest in uh, passing on the dance. We felt that we didn't have enough know-how. And as I said before, primarily we were performers. We were not teachers. Anyway, at some point, I can't say when, we, we anyway started to discuss whether we should bring Frankie back here. Remember, we had had him here in 87 only for us six dancers and at some point we came to a decision that we should invite frankie to come back because we had changed our mind we felt let's see if we can do something to already spread the dance and maybe we could start to teach also even though we didn't feel fully qualified around that so that that was the beginning of it all that we had this mindset so the rhythm hot shots was very important that was at the time eddie johnson eva lagerqvist mm. then it was uh catherine jungren it was lasse lundberg it was w eva staremo eva burek now and it was myself mm. so it was the the six of us that kind of were uh, putting on the event in 89. Um, I kind of became uh, instrumental in a way because I said I can do all the administration. So for about 10 years, a little bit more than 10 years, I took that responsibility outside of being a dancer on uh, in the Rhythm Hotshots. And the others, they helped out a little bit here and there. And then when the camp uh, happened, then of course all of us did as much as we could to help out to keep the logistics together but i always sat at the office at the time so uh, rhythm hot shots blah 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 that was important frankie manning the key man and a few years later chas young definitely was also one of the trendsetters at the time dawn hampton showed up so those three they became kind of in the very middle of the action somehow around the same time a swedish person showed up and became my right hand and that was kalle johansson and his importance for the camp was very very big because he had a very special way to deal with people and problems and all those kind of things so the combination of those people i have mentioned plus a handful of more of course uh, kind of led to that we found uh, a kind of platform where we felt 
that the uh, dance event could operate from. It became very old school. It was related to Frankie's background. It gradually turned into something a little bit surrealistic. It was very much a yes culture for most things back in the days. And somehow that concept worked very well at the time. So many people coming here as visitors, I think they liked the concept that we provided. So I, I think within that lively combination of Frankie Rhythm, Hotshots, Kalle once on the Chess, Young, Dawn Hampton, some other people, something very, very good came out. And it was the right thing at the right time. People loved it. They really liked to come to Harang and experience this bubble of African-American swing dance stuff from the jazz era. Mm. So that was the key thing. When you talk about the yes culture, I'm thinking about the first time that I went to, went to Herring, which also from the very beginning made it a very uh, nice experience, uh, was that it was closed for, uh, you couldn't sign up. And then I called, and then it was you then answering. Uh, oh. And because at that time it was uh, telephones yeah. with no, no computer and things, emails. Uh, and then you said, but, but it's it's fine, just come here, no problems. Uh, so from the very oh. from the very first moment, I could feel that this is not a, a place like many other institutions in in the society. But can you tell about also on the topic of yes culture when Kalle Johansson is uh, getting milk for a <laughs> oh that's a classic story oh, that is that is a classic story but there are many others too but since you asked about this one uh, this is a british man he shows up in the mid 90s something and he he is definitely a character definitely a character most people knew about him immediately because he stood out with his uh, a little bit eccentric personality somehow and he was frequently <clears throat> coming to the office with all kind of questions, quite unusual questions sometimes. But me and Kalle, we sat there and we had established this. Anything that people ask, we will fix it. That was the intention we had. So here comes this man and we look at each other probably because we knew, we know, we knew that, okay, here comes another unusual question. And then he says, you know, guys, I really need fresh cow milk every day to feel good. Okay. Uh, Kalle, I guess he's thinking for a few seconds. And then he says, ah, that shouldn't be much of a problem. Come back in a few hours and we'll see what we can do. Kalle starts to call farmers in the area, looking if there is any of them having cows. Some, one of them says, yes, I have cows, blah, blah, blah. Kalle makes an agreement with this farmer that this fairly eccentric British guy can come there every morning and milk a cow himself. <laughs> so we let him borrow a car like seven o'clock in the morning. He had access to one of the cars. He drove to the farmer, somehow learned how to milk a cow and he was happy. He had fresh cow milk every morning. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, that's amazing, and I think it says something about like the, the culture, atmosphere, yeah. the atmosphere that was at that time, and I also think about oh, yeah. 
all the Friday parties and and craziness that was around, which I also think many of the persons, people in the Rhythm Hot Shows, like you mentioned Katrin Jungren, Jungren, Katrin Jungren, she's a she's a really party. Yeah, yeah, she organizer that she and also very open-hearted and warm in a way that she I also remember the same the first year that I came there it was some dress up night and I didn't know what to bring and I didn't have any nice clothes and then she she lent me a very nice uh, evening dress I mean she didn't know me I was just a random girl coming there and she she lent me one of her nice dresses it's also was it was the yellow one with black dots yes exactly ah, i remember that one <laughs> but the whole thing with like it's a combination of going outside the box crazy very warm and welcoming and uh, it was a, a unique time i would say those early years at herring dance camp i mean it, it was based on Kalle's mentality and i think that i picked up on his mentality fully. Uh, so we, we became a, a unit down there at the office where yeah, everything was, yes, let's do it, let's fix it. So it, for me, it was a fantastic period to work at the office, sitting there together with him. We, we were very good friends and uh, I really liked his approach. So I, I, I felt every summer was such a pleasure to sit there together with him. And I guess it lasted for maybe five, six years, something like that. And then gradually Kalle faded away a little bit from the camp and he moved to the US and so on. And it wasn't the same any longer. But uh, for the key years when the camp started to grow, then it was very much about Kalle from the administrative side, from the practical side of taking care of people and possible problems. So a very fantastic uh, period, I think, in Harang, where, which was uh, warm, open, uh, friendly and, and, and heartly and uh, uh, non-judging, I would say. Very understanding and, and wel welcoming. And uh, I, I remember, I mean, I think Frankie and Dawn, they were a big part of creating this atmosphere. They were unifying for the whole Lindy Hop community in the world that met in Harang. Uh, but do you remember what they used to say? Both uh, Frank <laughs> and Dawn, they had a, they had a, an expression, a saying that they repeated over and over uh, again. Uh, I mean, they, they have a lot, of, a lot of things maybe they said that were quite similar, but I assume, if I would guess now, I think you are thinking about when they said things like, if all the politicians in the world would do the Lindy Hop, there wouldn't be any wars. Exactly. Because that, that was a little phrase they used from time to time. And I think that that very well described also a little bit the, uh, the inside nature of Harang at the time. And you already said it there, it was very extremely welcoming and inspiring somehow. You could be anyone and you were welcome to just join in with your personality. But what we had in common, that was the interest of the dance and the culture around it. 
and then you could be whoever you wanted to be inside that plat uh, that uh, fence or on that platform. So it was a fantastic period. And and did you believe in that saying, that expression as well? <laughs> At the time, I mean. Oh, well, in a way, I can see the point of it. It's a little bit. It can be looked upon as something naive, but at the same time, I think it makes sense. So it really depends how you look upon it. If the politicians would do that, maybe they just would become good friends instead of sitting arguing about a lot of stuff all the time. It's a possibility that would make sense in reality too, even though it will never happen because of millions of other reasons. Yeah. Do you see that the same thing goes for today's? Uh, do you think that if all people in the world did the Lindy Hop, there would be no wars today? <laughs> uh, it seems to be a little bit more open for wars today, no matter if people do the Lindy Hop or not. No. Uh, the Lindy scene, we all know it, the last five, ten years, whatever, it has become more political somehow. And that is for good or for worse. I mean, some of the intentions with uh, politics, I mean, they make sense because it can be this or it can be that and so on, so on. But uh, the sad thing is that his, it very often has been so ag aggressive, the whole thing. So it has created a lot of friction inside the scene for different reasons. And it, to me, uh, the scene is not as welcoming as it was back in the 90s and into the 2000s today. But at the same time, I'm not out and about as much as I was. So maybe I don't have the full picture any longer. Back in the 90s and into the 2000s, I think I, I was so much around teaching and performing. So I think I, I saw more of the scene than I actually do today. But the little I see today, I think it's sometimes quite sad what has happened over the last five, ten years. But there might have been good intentions, but it has also created a lot of friction, unfortunately. I, I really agree on that. There are topics that are brought up that are important. and uh, Of course, of course. To be lifted up and uh, we can become better in different ways. But it's really the, the harsh environment and it's about... Uh, taking people down almost. So I, I very often feel that it's like a battlefield. Often when you look at things that are written on internet or, or such, it's very often people who who maybe don't know what they're talking about, people that haven't been to hiring. And it's like someone is putting fire into something and then it's very easy for people being very active on internet to to react to to put more fire to it even if they don't even know what they're talking about or they just know very very small pieces of the whole situation or yeah the... and on top of that is that uh, all the people around that might think differently from the people who are very aggressive and angry they don't dare to say anything because when people do they will get accused uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they will be their next target mm -hmm. which has happened so it's like uh, when there are things coming up and you get accused for something that is totally out of the blue uh, 
people who support you don't do that uh, in public. In public, they, they come to you uh, behind the scenes. Yes, yeah, they send you exactly, messages because they, call they don't you. dare. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like it has never been a, a, any more harsh in the Lindy society than what it is now, and it feels like uh, if there is somewhere where I feel there's a battle going on, it's particularly within <laughs> the Lindy scene. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I spoke to uh, an organizer, a, a big swing dance organizer, uh, who stepped down and resigned from their uh, the, the the event that they were producing just because they didn't have the energy to stay any longer to defend themselves in public that they were supposed to take a public standpoint for something that wasn't in particular relating to their event and the, what we're doing, but it's in another social context for the society, take a standpoint for this. But then if you take a standpoint for that, you also need to take a standpoint for this, that, and the other, that all of a sudden everyone attacks you saying, but then you need to support us as well. Why don't you support this? And and then you're in this discussion uh, that takes all of your time um, instead of actually putting down the effort in creating a fantastic event, which is already maybe saying we are welcoming, we're open, we're going to have a great time and be positive. We don't tolerate any bad behavior I mean, or anything. I know quite a few dancers now, like really good dancers that have done a lot of good things for the Lindy Hop. That has quit dancing because they don't, they can't stand being in this environment. So mm. that is also, it's hard to know who who are the people that is is uh, putting fire to this. But there is also like you mean putting fuel to the fire. Yeah. Yes. P putting yes. putting fuel to the fire. But there is also uh, with the internet there are some trolls, uh, people who write things. Uh, under another name, for instance, and and uh, making a lot of accusations of different kinds. Do you know, Leonard, that that you are a target for someone called the Paragraph Rider? Uh, I think you have told me, or maybe it was someone else. Uh, first thing I'm going to say, I don't read anything because I'm not interested to be part of any debates or any social media or anything so I the only thing I know is what people occasionally tell me and I think you have told me about this before but I have never read anything I don't want to I, I don't want to spend my life sitting being a part of all these discussions or attacks or whatever it is I don't have that priority in my life mm. but it's really if, if there if there are people doing such things and this uh, the paragraph writer uh, writes uh, I, we don't know him or she herself himself writes that it's someone who knows you really well and that's been a partner to you in some way for many years and it goes way back someone who obviously were at the camp somewhere in the early 90s uh, based on what is written uh, and that accuses you for uh, being Klu Klux Klan and a Nazi. And <laughs> someone that, yeah. that says has been to your home because the persons know about the books in your in book your shelves. in your bookshelves that you have books uh, with Hitler 
and uh, therefore <laughs> you are a Nazi, and, and so on. What do you say about that? I'm very interested in history, by the way. So, so maybe I have books about both this and that in my bookshelf, uh, because I read quite a lot. So, so the, it could very well. I have a, probably books from World War II and so on, because I have an interest in his, history in general terms. Uh, so what, what, what was it? Am I a member of Ku Klux Klan also, you said? Yeah. And, and I'm a, am I a member or active Nazi also? Yes. And you support the Swedish racist party and you're uh, supporting Nazis. Mm. Oh, I'm quite, uh, it's quite interesting. First of all, I have never in my life taken any political action at all because um, primarily I would say I don't have much of an interest in mm. politics. Uh, I read about politics though, but I would never take any step because it's not a subject that interests me that much except for reading about it as a part of history. Mm. So uh, that I would be active in any way, it's of course nonsense. Uh, so this person saying that that person knows me, uh, that person doesn't know me at all. It's, uh, should we say, evil assumptions of some kind and I don't know the underlying reason for someone to saying things like that. But I mean, this started, I would say, nearly 20 years ago. And at that time, I was traveling to Russia quite frequently uh, to teach. And uh, I received anonymous letters attacking me for, for being some kind of supporter of Stalin and communism and all that stuff. So it started already at that time. And I said, oh, uh -huh, okay. Uh, I did it. I, I don't. I notice things like that when someone tells me, or if I get it uh, personally in any way. But it doesn't affect me really because I know it's all bullshit. So why would I sit and care about things like that? What can I do about it? I can't do anything. I can only do what I'm doing, and. It, I don't want to spend time sitting trying to defend myself to ridiculous accusations. I mean, it's um, no, I, I, I don't do those things. He can continue to write. Uh, I won't respond anyway, so I can't do, do anything about it. Uh, this person, by the way, I really wish I could give more info about me because people are luckily questioning the person who is writing uh, under anonymous, anonymous. Yeah, yeah, and coming with quite um, harsh and uh, I mean serious it, it, accusations. So people are starting to to asking, who are you and why are you saying this? So this pe this person says that. Uh, I can't uh, because uh, I could give more info about me, others involved and the actions. But the sad and frustrating fact is that I still have to navigate this as delicate as I can, since I'm still highly involved with him professionally. So it's obviously someone who is involved with you professionally. Yeah, you know, I don't. I don't. I'm not involved with a lot of people professionally any longer. So uh, that seems to be a questionable statement. But also, I mean, people have to uh, understand that they have to ask for facts. If someone accuses someone, especially when the person is anonymous, which is a very weird way uh, 
of dealing with things. If you accuse someone, you have to sign with your name, in my opinion. So it becomes a little bit more real, the whole thing. But uh, people have to check, uh, of course. And if this person can come up with any proof that I am a Nazi or member of Ku Klux Klan or a Stalinist or anything else, he, he or she is welcome to provide those things. And uh, the thing is, they don't exist. So it will be quite difficult for the person to provide anything that is substantial. Uh, this uh, paragraph writer also uh, writes here that that you are a racist and that it's... Uh, uh, be being racist and still have relationships with black people is really not that great. <clears throat> So, I mean, we talked a little bit about it uh, in the last episode, about uh, how it felt with all that you have done. And you also said that you put most of your life to... Uh... It was a full-time commitment. I mean, when I, when I, as well as some of my friends at the time, my dance friends, when we stepped into this, it was a full-time commitment. And it was done in appreciation of what we saw in the old movies. That was what it was all about. So to come up with that, that someone is a racist when the person has spent 40 years of his life trying to work and support African-American culture, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's weird. And the, the thing is that we talk about, about this battlefield and trolls on internet. And if there's someone who goes out and say things like this, and then other people don't know, and then they start to assume things, and then suddenly... Uh, people fact. start to think that oh, this must be some kind of truth but it's interesting and, and we would really be interested in getting more information so if there's uh, if you listen to this podcast and know maybe you've heard about the paragraph writer or being accused for things yourself please contact us because we would be really interested in in nailing down who this person is Uh, but it's obviously someone that has been working with you very closely for many, many years, Lennart. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's someone uh, that uh, speaks Swedish, but not a native speaking Swedish person, because this person has sometimes written in Swedish, but it's not, yeah, you can see that it's, it's not native. It's, it's, it, this person also writes some things in German and in English. So uh, yeah. try to narrow things down to to something. He's also a person that's been very active on some porn sites, uh, giving comments to girls. So I don't know if anyone could help us to to find out who this person is. We would be really interested because this is quite bad accusation that this yeah. person is doing. Oh, such a behavior. I cannot understand those behaviors, really. And I'm not talking about uh, my situation, because frankly, I don't care. You can write whatever you want. I live my life anyway, and I know what the truth is, so I don't worry about those things. But it's, of course, sad when people decide for some kind of animosity or whatever it is to just spread a lot of false things about someone. It's kind of a very weird behavior. And it says probably much more about that person rather than the person being accused for this and that. So um, it's, uh, it's very sad to hear because the Lindy community, when I came into it and when I was a part of uh, 
building it up in a way because we were a good amount of people that did a lot of good work back in the days. This was not existing at all. It was a very friendly atmosphere. That could be small frictions. One example could be the Hollywood dancers didn't like the Savoy dancers and things, but it was those small things that was just a little spice in the whole thing. Mm. In general terms, what you're telling me now, it, it was at the time unheard of. I never heard anything like that. Very, very weird. How has it developed into this? Yeah. I, I have no answer. And to, to round off the paragraph rider for now uh, is also that those are comments that's been staying on the Reddit site, but it's a lot of comments that been taken away because they are been, uh, what do you call it? Removed by the administrator of the discussion forum. Yeah, because it's been inappropriate. Yeah, inappropriate. Yeah. Things that this person has been writing. So. Uh, Please help us to understand who this person is. It sounds we are dealing with a weirdo. <laughs> sounds like that. And, and we don't know what do this weirdo want. I, I say to the weirdo, he, he or she can contact me and we can have a chat about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Lennart, uh, I think we're going to end this uh, talk with you today. But we want to talk to you more because now we talked about the golden years of herring dance camp where we i think all three of us have felt and been a part of a wonderful place to be uh, and uh, nowadays you're not running herring dance camp any longer and i also want to talk to you a little bit about that or we want to talk about yes that. yeah i uh, would love to be part of it too if i can <laughs> yes yes you're welcome <laughs> uh but for now i think uh, we're going to make uh, closure for this day yeah I, I say like frankie and norma keep swinging i mean that's uh, <laughs> that's what it's about keep swinging it's very simple but that's what it, that's what it comes down to somehow that is the, the the key thing around being inside this community it is to keep swinging whatever that means mm.